this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken. And oh. <laughs> How can you forget your lying after three years? And this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. And also the one we thought we had this great solution to all our woes. Trip. That we have a new place to record and everything. Yes. And then the hard drive of my laptop died. And to be honest, it's been circling the drain for a while. Mm-hmm. So... After screwing around with it for an hour or so, we are now in, you can't bring a hard drive back to life when it doesn't want to be. We're now recording on my iPad. So hopefully it'll sound okay. I hope it'll sound okay. We thought we had this great solution. We did, but we didn't take into account. And it's a long-term solution anyway, so... Yeah, hopefully we don't. Sound, hopefully we don't sound too bad. What, uh-huh. we know don't that we say our, that like every our voices? Are... Well, let's look at the positives. There's no Interstate 295 going by. Yeah, the fan on your car isn't going to come no. on. We're at the Travelers Inn in Brunswick, Maine, which is pretty much halfway between your house yes. and my house. We've got a nice little room. It was very cheap because it's the off season. Yeah, and we figured this is better than like renting a studio. Yeah. Or... For and, now. I and mean, so we're doing an episode of this and an episode of Groovy Tube, our other podcast. Yes. And if it works out, we'll be doing this more often. Yes. With definitely. a new hard drive. Hopefully. So you had, let's start. You I'll start with me. Time. I have an update. When I left off last time, we were in the middle of Noah Gaston's trial. When we recorded, it was the day before there was going to be a replica of the staircase at the trial. So The staircase of the house. The staircase of the house. So you have to listen to our last episode, episode 71, to hear the first part. There was... A replica, a full-size model, brought into the courtroom on Monday, and this was November 18th, 2019. Both the defense and prosecution used it to demonstrate their own theories of the shooting. And if this is your first time listening, just a quick recap of the Noah Gaston case, and you can listen to episodes 7 and 71 for the full story. Noah was charged with murder for shooting his wife, Alicia, in their Wyndham, Maine home on January 14th, 2016. He said he thought she was an intruder and she shot her with a shotgun from the top of the stairs or a landing near the top of the stairs as she was coming up. Back to the trial. On this fourth day of testimony, Maine State Police Detective Larry Rose stood at the top of the stair model holding a fake blue shotgun. Strings were attached to the muzzle of the gun. A blue string was 18 inches long. The distance the prosecutors contend was between Alicia and the gun when she was shot. The other string was red and was 48 inches long, which is the distance the defense claimed was between the gun and the victim. Assistant Attorney General Meg Elam had Detective Rose hold the gun on his left since Noah Gaston is left-handed. She wanted to illustrate that because the staircase was so narrow, there was no way the four-foot estimate worked for most trajectories and Alicia Gaston must have been closer to Noah when she was shot. Meg Ellum said, Is there any way a person on the first or second step could be four feet away from the muzzle of the gun? Detective Rose answered, No. Rob Andrews, the defense attorney, had Detective Rose stand in a different position and hold the shotgun on his right. Rob Andrews said that even though Noah is left-handed, the gun is designed for those who use their right hand, and he would have held the gun on his right to fire it. Andrews had Detective Rose stand in a different position, one that would have not been possible if Noah had been firing with his left hand. Andrews said, at four feet, could a person be on the stairwell? Detective Rose answered, they could be at this angle. Maine State Police Sergeant Chris Farley. <laughs> Chris I can only Farley. picture. I know. I don't I'm know what the guy looks Chris like. Chris Farley but I know. Uh, also testified. 
He took part in some of the recreations at the house that I talked about in our last episode. The police tried videotaping the light conditions and did some experiments with a mannequin to see what, what was visible at that time of the morning, which was an hour before sunrise. Rob Andrews questioned Farley about why they made the choices they had made during their experiments. For instance, the placement of the mannequin, who was a stand-in for Alicia, so they put her on the stairs. Sergeant Farley testified that the size of the stairway made it unlikely that Alicia was four to six feet away from Noah. So the prosecution was saying that she was almost up to Noah. Right. And the defense is saying she was like on the first or second step coming up. And I know we kind of talked about this last time. To me, that difference, it's not like she's 200 yards away or something. Even even at four Four to six six feet, feet. you're going to recognize your spouse. I know, that's not very far away. I mean, I know it's dark, but still, come on. Um, And also, wasn't there ambient light from, like, a spotlight outside and stuff? Andrew said, you didn't do anything to figure out what hand he was using to hold that shotgun either. And Sergeant Farley said, my goal when we put the rod in the wound path was to depict the flight path coming out of a shotgun. I was not trying to determine right or left-handed. Andrew said, because you didn't recognize the significance that would have on what a person would have been able to see. Mm-hmm. But then Meg Elam showed a photo taken the morning of the shooting when Noah Gaston was demonstrating the shooting to police. He is holding up his hands, mimicking shooting a gun. Meg Elam asked Sergeant Farley, is he <laughs> demonstrating shooting right-handed or left-handed? Sergeant Farley said left-handed. Mm-hmm. That's right. Owned. <laughs> Sorry. I don't I don't understand what you just did. Later, <laughs> I don't either. Later on Monday, the jury visited the Gaston's former home in Wyndham to see the actual site of the shooting themselves. And I wonder has that home been like, em- like I don't know. Sometimes if somebody else is living there, but maybe it has been. I don't I know. know. It's been like almost 3 years. I know. And I also think they rented. I don't think they owned it. I know. So, I don't know. It's weird. Who knows? I wonder if the state has to, like, pay the rent or something. I doubt it. We need they to won't ask... even clean up the blood. We need to ask Matt. I know. When we get add that to Add, add that, that to, to our the questions. lengthy list. I hope you listeners are keeping track of how yeah, many questions. I know. I know. <laughs> On Tuesday, forensic experts testified. Kimberly James, a scientist at the Maine State Crime Lab, told the court that Alicia Gaston had a wound on her hand from the shot that killed her, grazing her hand before entering her body. Alicia had soot on her hand, which came from the barrel of the gun, and James said would not have been there had Alicia been more than a foot and a half away from the muzzle of the gun. And because it hit her hand first, the pattern of the buckshot changed. In Kimberly James' words, once it hit her hand, the pattern was disrupted. There's an intervening object that no longer makes that a true pattern. The defense called Dr. Jonathan Arden, who was the only defense witness, a former government pathologist who is now a private consultant. He said the spacing of the buckshot indicated that Alicia was three to six feet away from the muzzle. He said the soot was just from the shot going through the air. Dr. Flomenbaum, <laughs> who's the chief main medical examiner, testified. His purpose was to estimate the angle of the shot, not the distance. 
and both he and he agreed with Dr. Arden, and they both have said it was a slightly downward angle. So that doesn't really right, which we discussed at length. Yes, the I can't semantics. discuss it anymore. Right, attorneys on both sides attempted to discredit the findings of the other side's experts and said that where there was a discrepancy, the expert was focusing on the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Um, on Tuesday, sometimes they do all that just to confuse the shit out of the jury. I know, yeah, you know. especially when it's scientific mm-hmm. stuff. Um, Tuesday, both sides rested, and oh, Noah Gaston did not testify. I always like that when it says they rested, yeah. you picture him, like, all oh, taking a nap or And something. Noah didn't testify. Yeah. Because, Probably honestly, what could he say? Yeah. Wednesday morning, November 20th, were the closing arguments. The jury deliberated Wednesday afternoon, all day Thursday, and into Friday, November 22nd. The jury could have convicted Noah of either manslaughter or murder. Judge Michaela Murphy instructed the jury of four women and eight men that murder means killing someone knowingly and intending to kill them. Manslaughter means someone killed another person with criminal negligence or reckless behavior. She also explained self-defense to the jury, which we discussed in episode 69. Mm -hmm. But in Maine, basically... The bumblebee. um... Yeah, your life has to be... In danger, right? If you are you able have no to other retreat, recourse, yeah. Right. If if you're able to retreat, right, then you you can't you can't say self defense, right. right? So if you were able to like get in your car and run away, you can't say or back down the hallway and lock yourself yeah, in the bathroom in or his whatever. case, yeah. On Thursday, the jurors asked the judge if they could examine the shotgun used in the killing. They also wanted to go back into the courtroom and look at the staircase replica. Everyone, because they liked it so much. I know. So they wanted much. to play on it. <laughs> yeah. Everyone had to leave the courtroom when the jurors came in. As the Press Herald noted, which the Portland Press Herald is where I got all my information for this update. Usually exhibits are available in the jury room, but the staircase model was too big. No one can be around when the jury... Because they're deliberating, yeah. yes. On Friday, November 22nd, after a few more hours of deliberation, the jury came back with a verdict. Guilty of murder. Mm -hmm. Noah Gaston put his head on the table until he was escorted out. As he was taken from the courtroom, Noah shook his head and said, I'm trying to protect my family. Yeah, he did a good job of that, bud. As Alicia's family left the courthouse, her sister-in-law, Amy Ouellette, addressed the media. She said, we'll never have Alicia back, but we're happy that justice was served. Mm -hmm. Noah Gaston will be sentenced sometime in the future, but in Maine, murder is 25 years to life. And there's no parole. No parole. And usually, it seems like a lot of times it's been like 50 years to life. Also, on a related note. Yes. You may remember last time we talked about Dr. Mark Flomenbaum. And sorry, I just like saying his name. I do too. I like saying his name a lot. Maine's chief medical examiner. I told you how state representative Jeff Evangelos from Friendship, Maine, filed a complaint because Dr. Flomenbaum had a side job as a private consultant. Hmm. The attorney general's office reviewed that complaint along with two others that we'll talk about that Evangelist brought out, uh, Representative Evangelist brought up and, to them as and well. I, and Channel 6 the other night, they were talking about that and they said Flomenbaum has been the subject of three complaints and they never said they were all by the same guy. And I just feel like if you're the subject of three complaints from totally different disparate yes, people, it it's different. a lot different. It is than... different. Well, the first complaint was about him having a side job. He had a side job as a private consultant, Flomenbaum. The Attorney General's office reviewed the complaint, and they just finished uh, a couple days ago, actually, their review, and it was took them nine months, and found no evidence that Dr. Flomenbaum was doing any of this consulting during his office hours as chief medical examiner. And it's not uncommon for people to do this side jobs. And I will say that the one, the 
only thing that they found was he once answered his phone when he mm. when he was working yeah. as a consultant. Right. And they said that really wasn't enough. Um, he answered his phone while he was on the job yes. for Maine. Yes. Right. He answered a consulting Right question. Yeah. Um, according to the Portland Press-Herald, Dr. Flomenbaum worked in New York City and was second in command there before being brought to Massachusetts in 2005 by Governor Mitt Romney. And he was second in command after the 9-11 attacks and he was very well regarded in New York. Mm -hmm. So Mitt Romney hired him to fix their issues with their crime lab. And he was fired two years later by Governor Deval Patrick um, because the department was in disarray. And this kind of touches on the Annie Duke and Sonia Farrakh right. story that we did in episode 36. Two. You think I remember 29? 29. I think it's 29. Whatever it was. But whatever, the bad chemistry one. That whole department was fucked up. So he, he might get some blame for it, but he's not the only one. Right. But... But they did lose. They misplaced a body. That yeah. was apparently the final straw. Oops. Someone got buried in the wrong grave. Yeah. And that is a big oops. He, um, Flomenbaum sued, sued Massachusetts after he was fired, but I didn't, I don't know what happened with that. I couldn't find anything and I didn't want to spend hours looking for it. He had a five-year contract with them. And also, lots of those suits, once they're, if they're settled, which most of them are, you're not going to find it anyway because it's, it's a private, private settlement. He came to Maine in 2013 as deputy medical examiner and became chief a year later. In 2018, his office was named one of the best in the United States, mm. according to a Medical Examiner's Association. But every article I read about it did not mention what the association was. Mm. So, Representative, State Representative Jeff Evangelos, he's an independent from mm, Friendship. Yeah. He made a big deal about the, the side gig, but also about a letter... In 2016, our governor, Janet Mills, got from a former prosecutor from Connecticut. Flomenbaum had testified as a defense witness in a trial that ended in a manslaughter conviction, and he was a defense witness. According to the Bangor Daily News, Flomenbaum had said the child died of natural causes. The jury found that the child had died from child abuse. He said the child had some kind of a intestinal problem. It was a three-year-old child that had a victim that had contusions, and Flomenbaum said those could have been dog bites. He testified for the defense. Well, you never ended know what in a, jury, a conviction. You never know what a jury's going to do. But this former prosecutor wrote a letter to Janet Mills saying that he had no credibility. I have an issue with that. Peter. Especially once you get into, aside from the letter and everything, it's being shown more and more that a lot of cases where, where somebody's convicted, the kid, it was something natural. Yes. And lots of times they can get injured when somebody's trying to revive them. But once the jury sees a picture of a little kid, boom, you're convicted. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying one thing or another right. about that, right. but I do think that, which Janet Mills probably did, consider the source. It's a former prosecutor, and he was on the other side. Right. And, and, well, and why is are he you saying, writing a letter? But is he, was he saying Fulmanbaum didn't have credibility simply because the jury yes. convicted? Yes. Well, that's ridiculous. Or something like that. Like, so every consultant who who's on the opposite side of how the jury goes is not it's a, credible? And it's just a slippery yeah. slope. Another thing that caused controversy was the cause of death of an Appalachian trail hiker whose body was found in western Maine. Jeff Alward was the victim. He was diabetic. Dr. Floman, ooh, similar to your uh, lady in your book. Yeah, she wasn't diabetic. Though. I know, but she was she was already sick and she was dead. Yeah. Dr. Flomenbaum signed a death certificate that said that the cause of death was a condition that causes heart attacks and, di and diabetes. Both of those were causes of death. But he also wrote that acute and chronic alcoholism was a contributing factor. Alward's wife, Anne, fought 
to have this phrase removed from the death certificate. And I think she didn't know what was on it until somehow it became public. Right. I think it was during this. There were articles. Yeah. She said her husband had quit drinking after being diagnosed with diabetes. He hadn't had a drink in 15 years. Police found no alcohol containers in his tent. And the autopsy showed Jeff's liver to be normal. Decomposition can cause alcohol to build up in the system, which would make a body's blood alcohol level higher. Anne Alward told the Press Herald and the Bangor Daily News that Dr. Fulmenbaum would not listen to her when she told him her husband didn't drink. And she said he was very unresponsive to her. After the controversy, apparently he he wanted to meet with her and she didn't want to have anything to do with Mm -hmm. him. However, he removed that contributing factor from the death certificate. It didn't really say much about it. The latest controversy is the one ad, which I'm not sure where it was posted because it didn't say. It was an online one ad. I heard kind of vague, like it was in a a specific place for forensic people jobs, but I don't know if it was on like, you know, where they actually posted it on LinkedIn, whatever. But anyways, it was a one ad that was posted in August of 2017. So I also don't know how it came to light. So the first part of the one ad is pretty straightforward. I looked up the ad so I could read the whole thing because I wanted to see the whole thing in context. It's a few paragraphs about the job and the job responsibilities and about the state saying it's a low stress job and high quality of life and the job responsibilities and all that stuff. And then it says, has these bullet points, Maine has a unique combination of factors that make it an ideal environment for the collaborative, solidly trained forensic pathologist. The first bullet point, a truly dedicated and professional force of law enforcement and prosecutors. They have these little translations after them in parentheses. Translation, police reports and assistance are prompt. State-of-the-art crime lab is incredibly efficient. Both are always available to help in real ways. The second bullet point, collegial system and region. Translation, the medical examiners are highly respected and trusted by the communities which we interact. Third bullet point, a winter mecca for skiers, snowmobilers, ice fishing, and other winter sports. Translation, really short season for decomposed bodies. Fourth bullet point, vast waterways and enormous coastline, ideal for aquatic and marine sports. Translation, many bodies are lost at sea or wind up in either New Hampshire or Canada. It's weird that they even have those translations. Small population, about 1.3 million, spread out over a large area, about 35,300 square miles. Translation, only the bodies that need to come in for autopsies will do so. Now, I think he was trying to be, like, funny or trying to make it stand out. Right. Uh, He missed the mark because a lot of people didn't think it was funny. Although, I don't know, maybe... People I'd like to know more. Kind of I'd like to know more about the genesis of that ad, and if I'd like he to know about specifically is the one who added those translations. And as someone who's looked at a lot of job ads, I've never seen like translation. Yeah, you almost feel like that's like a joke. Uh, then, well, it is. I no, think not that... a joke on the part of whoever placed the ad, but somebody takes the ad and. Puts. Oh, I'm not I, saying that's oh, what happened. I see. Somebody was saying, right. oh, what they really mean is right. blah, blah, blah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking it was either planet. Sometimes people want their their ad to stand out somehow. Right. They use human. I mean, yeah. I don't right. know. I don't right. know. I don't think it's that big of a deal, but a lot of people were. Has there been any response tried... about the ad? Like, has he explained it? I don't think so. Well, you know. But I don't weird. know how it even came to light. I know. It's two years, two and a half years ago. But that was one of the thing, other things. And that... that's just, you know, if you don't have a problem with it, although they probably didn't see it, then my guess is somebody saw that Evangelos was 
Um, I think Evangelist is the one that brought this to light. Right. Too. Well, that somebody saw he was doing that and said to Evangelist, well, have you seen this? Yeah. And that kind of thing, you know. So, like, but as I said, the the Attorney General's office said none of these factors were enough to undermine their confidence in him. And he's fine. So for now, he's fine. There have been, and there were a lot of comments. Uh, Bill Nemitz had a he's who, a columnist. He's a columnist. He had a one. It was before there were a lot of columns before they the findings of Attorney General's office. A lot of people are giving him sh- Dr. Flomenbaum's ship for all these things. I honestly don't have a huge opinion one way or the other, but I do think that. The thing in Massachusetts, it was already a mess when he got there. Yes. And it was, it sounds like it was an overwhelming mess. And the other thing is, he was hired here with the people who hired him here knowing. That did. And, so, but people were questioning it. Well, why would they even hire him? And then, of course, they blamed Janet Mills, who wasn't even the governor. Uh, it was Paula yes, Page appointed right. him. So, anyways, whatever. But I just wanted to kind of update you on okay, that. Goodness. Another update. I have, which is a short one, is to our episode 12 about Uber crimes. Oh, yeah. So that was a long time ago. Oh, it was a long time ago. So on December 5th, 2019, the New York Times reported that Uber did a study, its first ever, on Uber-related crimes and other incidents. They found in 2018 there were 3,045 sexual assaults, nine murders, 58 deaths from crashes. Uber, and that's in the one year, the calendar year? Uber pointed out, yes, that there were 1.3 billion rides that year. So these incidents were a tiny fraction of a percent. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Even so, Tony West, chief legal officer for Uber, said, quote, the numbers are jarring and it's hard to digest. What it says is that Uber is a reflection of the society it serves, which I don't really know what he's saying. What he means is anywhere in society, there's a certain percentage of those things happening, and they're going to happen in Uber just the way they're going to happen anywhere else. The Times reported that in 2017, a woman in India sued Uber after being raped by a driver, and she accused the company of getting her medical records and using them against her, and she settled, so we don't know Mm, what the hell that was about. Just this week, 19 women filed a lawsuit against Lyft, saying that they had been sexually assaulted on rides. All ride-sharing programs have had incidences. As the article pointed out, Uber is trying to be transparent about it. Uber said that though 92% of the victims were passengers, drivers reported other types of sexual assaults at the same level, and I don't really understand what they mean by that, except for whatever. The fatal crashes statistic included people who were hit by cars after exiting an Uber ride, as well as crashes where the Uber driver was not at fault, so that everything isn't about right. the drivers like crashing into people. Right. There were ten murders in 2017, along with the nine in 2018. Seven of those victims were drivers. Eight were riders. Four were people who were bystanders. So neither Did you driver say 10? nor rider. Ten murders in se- 2017. Nine in 2018. Oh, so the ones you listed are both years. Yes. 19, okay. So I was doing the math, and it was like seven plus okay. eight, right? Plus four. Okay. Equals nine. Okay. Yeah. So drivers are just almost just yeah, as. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Yes. Uber has been studying safety issues for the past two years and is working on setting up a support hotline in partnership with the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. Okay. So they are trying. Yeah, they're trying to do something. To trying to deal with the issue, like somebody on Twitter was like, "Well, how's that unregulated cab? You know, working for you?" And I said, "You know, I have felt just as unsafe in a, in a, cab. In a regulated cab." Oh, yeah. Than in an Uber, it's yes. it's not about what the right. pr- platform is; it's about the who's driving. Right, 
if someone's like, oh, yeah, well, that's what you get when you want a cheap ride. It's like, yes, you do deserve to be raped or killed if you want a cheap ride. They they mean you're taking a bigger risk, but I honestly don't think I don't it's think a bigger you are. risk. No. No. I mean, how how well our no. cab drivers vetted? I don't know. Yeah. Anyways, so that was my. Oh well, thank so you. So now you have updates. your lovely. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. I'm excited. You know, we've done a lot of women killer stories lately, yes. and those are women being killed, not women killing other people. Although maybe I should do. Anyway, go ahead. So I thought I'd do something different. Okay. It has two aspects to it. One that I've had a fascination with since I was a kid. Ooh. And still has repercussions. Oh, that's right. I don't know what this one is. Yeah, well, you'll find out pretty quick. And still has repercussions today, including lessons not learned. Ooh. The other part is much more recent and shows how the same mistakes and human failings can lead to the same result, even though you'd think people would have learned the lesson the first time around. People don't learn. No, they don't learn. The first part is still an unsolved crime, in some ways at least. In the second part, there's a question of whether the truly guilty were really punished as much as they should have been. Commensurate with the loss of life. And so I'll begin. Okay. November 28, 1942 was a relatively quiet night in Boston. The way it's quiet this time of year when it gets dark early and the nights get cold. Still, things were hopping, particularly on Piedmont Street in the Bay Village area of the city at one of the hottest clubs in town. The Coconut Coconut Grove. Grove. Yeah, you know where I'm going with this. The club was in a low-slung brick building that took up nearly a city block. It was cut up into several rooms with a big dining room and ballroom on the main floor that had poles that looked like giant palm trees Mm. and a long oval bar, the caricature bar, along one side. When the weather was nice, the roof could roll back so patrons could dine and dance under the stars. Nice. So being New England, that was about... You know, a month and a half out of there. And also on that main floor had a couple small lounges and a new bar that had just been built in the back, the Broadway Lounge. And it also had restrooms and a kitchen up there. It was a big place. The Melody Lounge was in the basement, a smaller space, about 40 feet long, with a room-length curving bar and piano. And there was a basement kitchen as well. Hmm. Marshall Cole, 16 at the time and a dancer in the club's dinner show, said it was a pleasant place to be. The Melody Lounge was a pleasant place to be in the club. The female piano player sang and told jokes, and couples enjoyed hanging out in the quieter space. Like the upstairs, it was lined with fake palm trees made of paper and cardboard, Mm -hmm. and it had a blue satin covering on the ceiling designed to look like the night sky. Uh Barney Walensky, who owned the club and ran it with his brother James, was in Mass General Hospital recovering from a heart attack he'd suffered two days before on Thanksgiving that night. It was the Saturday night of Thanksgiving weekend and a big football game, Boston College versus Holy Cross, had been played in town that day at Fenway Park, not far from the club. There were also 19 Navy ships berthed in the city. It was less than a year after World War II had started, and a lot of other military personnel were around from all the region's military bases. Yeah, Many of those were on leave for that weekend, and they came to Boston if they were on one of the many bases in the region, and a lot of them were at the Coconut Grove. Also at the Grove was cowboy movie star Buck Jones, who was in town as part of a war bond drive. Jones had been at the football game that day, a guest of Boston Mayor Maurice Tobin. Jones wasn't feeling well, and he wanted to go back to his hotel, but the people he was with convinced him to go to the Coconut Grove. Mm-mm-mm. The Grove was used to hosting celebrities. In fact, it had a raised area of tables in the main dining room, and celebrities were seated there so they'd be highly oh, visible yes. to the other diners. 
And, and any time, right, any time there was any celebrities were in town, that's where they went. It was the place to go. Boston College lost the football game earlier. <laughs> I went to Holy Cross, so, as mm. you know, yeah. Yes. A big blow. They were the overwhelming favorite to beat their arch rival, fellow Jesuit school from Worcester, 40 miles to the west, which was nothing new in the 100 plus years that the two have played. Boston College has always been dominant in sports but as we used to say at holy cross yeah well what if they held a reading contest Ooh, yeah. Oh, burn. So, yeah anyway holy cross hammered bc 55 to 12 that day and it was such a blow to the eagles that they canceled a big victory party they'd planned Aww. for the coconut grove and almost anything you read about the coconut grove brings that up a lot of people who were there tonight have been at the game because this was 1942 and the options for entertainment weren't everything today and it was a big football game people love their sports and and it was a big weekend it was a big weekend a holiday weekend yep people were home for thanksgiving and the absence of that party didn't even make a dent at the coconut grove well the club's capacity was set at 500 by the city fire department an estimated 1000 plus were crammed in that night at about 10 15 p.m an alarm box at the corner of Stewart and Carver Streets, about three blocks from the Grove, sounded. The firefighters who responded found a car fire and quickly put it out. As they were finishing up, rolling the hoses back into the truck, one of them noticed smoke coming from a few blocks away. As they went to investigate, they were met by people running towards them, yelling that the Coconut Grove was on fire. And so began the most deadly nightclub fire in U.S. history, and the second most deadly single building fire, the most deadly building fire was the Iroquois Theater in Chicago in 1903, where oh, yes, more than 600 yes. people died, oh, many of them God. kids. But ultimately, 492 people, oh. almost half of those in the Grove that night, would die. Oh, my most God. of them from burns or suffocation from toxic fumes. Despite numerous investigations from several agencies, including the U.S. Navy, which lost 31 sailors in the fire, part of, I think, 50-plus, I have it later down, military people who died the cause has never been determined hmm. sources for this story are wide-ranging they include the boston globe the boston fire historical society prologue magazine which is the magazine of the national archives the coconut grove fire website of the national fire protection association and that they also have um, a video series on youtube called learn something new and i they have a little thing about coconut grove a recent thing that i took and particularly with that casey grant of that organization who was executive director of fire protection and research and has written extensively about the fire including a 2007 article last dance at the coconut grove which had a lot of good stuff in it also information from thoughtcatalog.com the providence journal and bu today a boston university publication and i just want to say about the national fire protection association that they're behind the coconut grove website and they've done extensive work on gathering materials, including forming a coalition in 2012 to collect materials, including video diaries from some of the survivors, which were very helpful. So I used so woo, that's a lot of sources and stuff. Yes. It was cool to you have did that your much. homework. Well, there's so much that a lot people who are familiar with this may wonder why I am I don't talk about some things, but there's just so much to talk about that um so that night, November 28th, Houston Gray, his wife and some friends had been to the BC Holy Cross game and they'd gone to some other clubs waiting for their late evening dinner reservation at the Grove. When they got there, Houston recalled for Casey Grant in the 2007 Last Dance article, 
It was so crowded, it was difficult to squeeze between the tables to get to their seat. In fact, they had to wait for the reservation, and their table wasn't available, so they were seated at somebody else's table that had been reserved for somebody named O'Brien. It seemed like at that point they were just jamming people in wherever they could. The party was in a corner near a wall, and Hewson's wife noticed that the wall seemed warm. He recalled them all touching the wall and saying, yeah, it was warm, much warmer than it should have been, and joking that since it was so cold out, they could just lean against it if they got chilly. All these years later, he still wonders if that was some sign of a problem Uh... in the building. Saul Davis, a 21-year-old intern at Brockton Hospital, which is a city south of Boston, was at the Grove with his wife and two friends for dinner. They were seated in the terrace area of the main dining room, which is a long section kind of across from the caricature bar, which is a big oval bar that lines one side of it. Anne Clark, her last name now Gallagher, 19, of Keene, New Hampshire, was also at the Grove. She'd gone to the Holy Cross BC football game with her parents and her boyfriend and his parents. After the game, they drove around and saw the sights. Then they went to the Grove for dinner. At the same time the alarm was sounding for the car fire at 10.15, Anne and her boyfriend were heading out to the dance floor. Saul Davis and his group were just finishing dinner. Marshall Cole, the the 16-year-old dancer, was in a dressing room in a small second floor area getting ready for the dinner show, which was running late. It was supposed to have started at 10. Houston Gray was making his way back through the tables from the men's room, wanting to get to his seat before the dinner show began. He said it took forever because the place was so crowded it was hard to get between the tables. Downstairs in the Melody Lounge, busboy Stanley Tomaszewski was climbing up a footstool to change a light bulb in one of the paper palm trees that lined the room. Uh, light bulbs and paper palm trees. Mm-hmm. If you know anything at all about this fire, you may know the lore that Stanley lit a match so he could see better. The Melody Lounge was licensed to seat 100, but that night it had way more than that, with the long narrow room packed and the crowd at the bar four deep. As the piano player launched into a popular wartime tune, some of those near where Stanley had changed the bulb saw what could have been flames flickering among the paper palm tree. The decorations changed color, and some said it looked like they were burning but without a flame. Then the palm trees burst into flames. Ah. Bartenders tried to put it out with water and seltzer bottles, and Stanley and another bartender pulled the palm tree off the wall, trying to stamp it out. Some of the quicker people in the room were already heading for the stairs, Mm. the only way to get out of the lounge. Uh. Within seconds, though, the fire had ripped across the blue satin fabric that covered the ceiling of the Melody Lounge, as well as the plywood underneath it, and up the stairs, which had a four-foot-wide stairwell and was also lined with blue satin. Oh, my goodness. Those who made it up the stairs tried to open an emergency exit at the top, but it wouldn't open. So they headed down the foyer to the main entrance of the club, a revolving door out onto Piedmont Street. Mm. A huge fireball shot through the foyer, which had a high curved ceiling, so like the barrel of a gun, shot the ball of fire into the main ballroom dining area. Saul Davis's group, finishing dinner, heard a commotion from the stairway that led down to the lounge and saw people running in from the stairwell. The lights went out and the cloud of dense smoke invaded and spread through the dining room. Quote, all we could hear was tables being turned over, dishes being broken, people yelling, and it was total panic, he recalled in 2007, the audio of which is on the um, Coconut Grove website. There's a little video with some survivors. He died in 2008. Marshall Cole, the dancer, heard a rumbling and opened the door to see a scrum of people down below in the foyer. A free-for-all, he called it in the video. 
He thought maybe it was a fight related to the football game. Then a giant ball of smoke with sparks flying out of it came toward him. God. I don't want any part of this, he said. He slammed the door and grabbed his brand new camel hair coat, which he was very proud of, his tuxedo and his dancing shoes, and debated whether to go downstairs. It seemed to him like some people were getting out the front door. But just then, another dancer came running into the room and crashed through a window out onto the roof. Cole figured maybe he shouldn't go downstairs. He dropped everything, including that camel hair coat that he loved so much. Just at that point, as he was heading to the window, all the women dancers from the chorus line came running into the room. That might have been the only window up there. It's hard to tell. It wasn't really clear where it is, but it looks like it's this upper section. Mm -hmm. They ended up on the roof, and they were trying to figure out how to get off, and they found an old ladder up there. They lowered it down. It only went halfway down to the street, but he and two of the other male dancers held it as the other guy helped the chorus girls down the stairs. And it seemed to take forever, he said. And just when he was wondering who was going to hold the ladder for him (laughs) or the guys... The fire department showed up and raised the ladder up to the roof, and they all got down safely. Ann Gallagher said when the ball of smoke and fire burst into the ballroom, her boyfriend, Fred Sherby, told her to get on her hands and knees and cover her mouth. Those are the last words they ever spoke to each other. Mm. She said the next thing she knew, she was waking up in Mass General Hospital. She still doesn't know how she got out, though she's been told she was found near the revolving door. Not only did her boyfriend die, but her parents and his father did too. Of her group, only she and her boyfriend's mother survived. Saul Davis's table was near the kitchen, and he went through a gate that separated the area from a hallway with his wife, but so did many others. He was holding her arm, but she got sucked into the crowd and separated from him. He fought his way back into the crowd and got her, grabbed her arm, and decided that they should go in through the kitchen, kind of away from where the crowd was going. He asked a waiter how to get out, and the waiter pointed to a door that was on the other side of the crowd. Saul saw it was inward opening, and the crowd was already trying to push against it, and there was no way anyone was going to get out of there. And so we're not going over there, he said to his wife. They went deeper into the kitchen, and it was pitch black because the lights had gone out. He looked up and saw a small window and this was, they had been going through, it's kind of a long story. They got on a table, and he pushed the window open, and you look at, there's a picture of it, it's this tiny little window, and he helped his wife through, and then he followed her through, and they were outside the club in an alley off Piedmont Street. Wow. Houston Gray's party was watching the commotion across the room. At first, no one on their side of the room thought it was a big deal. A lot of people probably, like, Marshall Cole thought it was a fight. Mm -hmm. Then there was a big fireball that burst across the ceiling, igniting the ceiling in the fake palm trees. A waiter near them opened what looked like a service door to the outside that had been hidden behind a curtain. The Greys and their friends went toward the door, but the surging crowd pushed them away from it. That's when the lights went out, and they ended up in the dark corridors behind the stage. They and a large group followed the walls in the dark, and they came to a door, but it was locked. So they moved on. They came to another one, also locked, and some of the men tried to break it down. By this time, the acrid smoke was overpowering many in the crowd. I can't imagine. They couldn't break down the door, but suddenly there was a crash. It was firemen with axes breaking through from the street, and when the door came down, the crowd spilled out onto Shamut Street, which is the street that ran behind the club. At 10.20, someone outside of the grove pulled the first alarm for the fire, and those firemen who had been on the street were already there. Yes, but thank God that one of the firemen... They estimated that probably saved saw the smoke. a bunch of lives. Yeah. Somebody pulled a fire alarm from a firebox at the corner of Church and Winchester Streets. 
By then, the building had filled with toxic fumes, smoke, and rising heat, as well as fire. Here's the account of District Fire Chief John Vashi, who did an investigation in 1970. This can be found on the Coconut Grove Fire website, along with a link to his complete statement. This is part of it, and some of it may seem redundant, but he explains kind of what was going on well. And there have been numerous investigations over the years, and they've never quite managed to figure some things out. But this is what John Vashi wrote. As the fire rushed up the stairway, it traveled near the ceiling and above the heads of the persons ascending to make their way out of the building. The movement of this fire and great volume of carbon monoxide gas generated by lack of oxygen was accelerated by the narrow, four feet, mm. widths of the stairway, which acted like a chimney, adding a draft of suction to the room below. Uh. In the stairway, the partially unburned gas rapidly mixed with air and increased the temperature and rapidity of flow. The burning mass passed from the top of the stairway into a narrow connecting corridor. At this end of the corridor was an exit door leading to Piedmont Street. This door was locked the night of the fire. The other exit from the Melody Lounge was by means of a door used by waiters leading to a passageway to the kitchen. Located in this passageway was a door leading to an outside alleyway. This door was locked the night of the fire. Fire appeared in the street floor lobby within two to four minutes after it was first seen in the Melody Lounge. It was described as traveling rapidly as a ball of fire below the ceiling and yellowish or blue in color. Most of the lights on the premises became extinguished immediately upon the appearance of the fire. The fire in the corridor of the foyer appeared to have been accelerated by a large ventilating fan placed over the further end of the caricature bar, acting to draw air from the foyer along the length of the bar. As fire traveled through the lobby toward the bar, it was soon followed by a thick cloud of smoke. The fire then traversed the length of the area containing the caricature bar. Some few persons, including persons coming from the basement Melody Lounge, passed through the revolving door on Piedmont Street before the mass of flames reached it. The door then appears to have been jammed. Probably. There was a very great pouring of flames through the exit. The great majority of persons on the street floor had no warning of the fire until the flames actually appeared in the lobby. Upon reaching the main dining room, the flame, moving rapidly, swept high about the room near the ceiling, shortly followed by a cloud of dense smoke described by witnesses as acrid. The burning and decomposition of wall coverings once again produced material largely gaseous and capable of further combustion and very rapid movement. The great mass of partially burned gases spread from the Melody Dining Room and into the Broadway Lounge. And that was the new lounge mm -hmm. way at the back of the building. The rapidly pouring mass of burning gaseous material appeared to have been depressed from its high elevation within the premises in order to pass through the exits. That means the fire traveled downwards to get through the doors. Persons attempting to pass through the exits were overcome by the great heat of the fire and of the gaseous material pouring through them at the time. The fire, within five minutes after it was first seen in the basement room, entirely traversed the street floor of the main building and had passed to the entrance to the Broadway Lounge. Until such time as they were brought under control, the flames poured out of the exits on Piedmont Street, Shawmut Street, and Broadway. So that's his part of his report. And I just wanted people to get an idea of what was kind of going on with the fire. The response was tough, too. The club was on a narrow cobblestone street surrounded by other narrow streets. If you've ever been to Boston, you know what I'm talking about. Mm. Crowds, fire trucks, ambulances, police trucks, and more all got jammed in. Besides the police and fire response, the Coast Guard, the Navy responders from all sorts of places showed up. Rescue crews couldn't get in 
the few doors that had been opened because they were jammed with bodies, oh. as were the windows. The amount of bodies was overwhelming to the res- rescuers. Living people were mixed in with dead people. Oh, God, can you Including imagine? on the street. There were piles of them. Um, one person recounted they came out a window and expected to feel cobblestones and it was soft and realized they were walking on bodies. One firefighter who had been one of the ones to sort the mountain of bodies blocking an entrance and brought to the hospital for smoke inhalation turned out also to have scratches all over his legs from people clawing at him. Uh. It was made worse as below freezing temperatures froze the water from the fire hoses on the streets. By 11, the fire got five alarms. The fire itself was quick, almost a flash fire. It took about an hour put out. But those inside who didn't die of burns were overcome by immense smoke and toxic fumes. Houston Gray, the guy whose party was seated at a table reserved for somebody named O'Brien, when scanning the list of the dead that they ran for days and days as they identified people in the newspaper, saw four O'Briens died, and he wondered where they'd been seated. Hmm. The Red Cross arranged for rides home that night for people who couldn't get back through police barriers to get their cars, and many also didn't have their keys. They were in the pockets of their coats in the coat check room. Gray said when he went back the next day to get the car, all these years later, one enduring image was all the cars parked along the narrow streets near the club, a rare sight for a Sunday back then in Boston, and he wondered how many of their owners would never be coming back then. Another image also stays in his mind. As he and his wife and friends walked down the street that night, after a homeowner had given um, the women in the group warm coats to wear, they heard someone say they were all drunk and that's why they died. Ah. It took weeks to identify all the dead. Some were without their purse or wallet. When all was said and done, 492 were dead, 166 hospitalized, and the rest either got out or weren't injured badly enough to go to the hospital. The dead represented people from 25 of what was then 48 states. Wow. According to Casey Grant, the typical injury to death ratio for this type of fire is one dead for every three to five injured. In this case, that was reversed. Three to five dead for every one injured. After the fire was out and rescuers got in, they found a shocking sight. Aside from the mountain of bodies piled in the revolving door, there were bodies piled against two nearby doors, one an emergency exit and one a service exit, and both were bolted shut. Uh. The finger pointing, of course, started immediately. The Boston Fire Commission began an inquiry the day after the fire, which would later be known as the Riley Report. It was the first of multiple investigations, including ones by the Navy and the FBI, and several by the Boston Fire Department and other fire agencies. A focus was the building's condition. It had passed a fire inspection a week before the fire, yet there were obviously code violations. Stephanie Scarro, an author who's written a book about the Coconut Grove, and by the way, I met her 10 years ago when I was beginning to do freelancing, and I went to this freelance association meeting in Boston. She and I got to talking. I'd never met her before, and she told me she was working on a book about the Coconut Grove. I'm like, oh, that's like my favorite thing, and I promised to buy her book. Well, not my favorite. I shouldn't say it like that, but I'm very interested in that, and I promised to buy her book, and I kind of forgot about it but and I didn't want to buy a book as I was doing this because I didn't well, want to have, have to buy it. right I I plan to but anyway she writes in the intro to um the Boston Fire Walking Tour and you can find that on the NFPA website too that among the misconceptions is that the fire led to the passing of new rules about revolving doors exits and overcrowding quote the sad reality is that many communities had already adopted safety codes that address such hazards. It was only after the Coconut Grove fire that such rules were actively enforced. Hmm. 
the fire inspector who had inspected the club a week before, Frank Linney, had issued a one-page report the week before the fire that said the building's condition was good. Among his findings were that there were no flammable decorations. He said at a hearing held after the fire that he'd taken some and tried to light them and it was very difficult for them to ignite. This was standard practice at the time, Casey Grant wrote, quote, the fallacy of these test measures would later be shown. Oh. The Riley report wasn't a criminal investigation. It was just to determine the cause of the fire and its findings weren't released um, until about a year afterwards. But a criminal investigation was also going on. And Linney, the inspector, was indicted on charges of manslaughter and willful neglect of duty by the end of 1942. A trial the next year found him not guilty, and many felt he was scapegoated, taking the fall for a higher level of corruption. His lawyer pounded him on the stand, and he broke down, lamenting the loss of life and that he had no idea that would happen. And I read a thing by somebody who had gone to the trial, wondered why his own lawyer was being so hard on him, and then realized that the lawyer was trying to get him to break down to show people how uh. upsetting it was. And the focus on how the fire started was first on Stanley Tomaszewski, the busboy who lit a match to see in the dark corner to change the light bulb. And he was an immediate target of the public and media. Oh. In 1943, State Fire Marshal Stephen C. Garrity cleared Stanley, saying, It is clear to me that he did not ignite the palm tree in the Melody Lounge. Oh. And I won't go into all the details, but I read another book about this years and years ago that went into a lot of detail about why they think it's not that it didn't happen, but why they think that it didn't cause the fire. And the poor kid, just like after the fire, when he was being questioned, said, You know, I think I might have lit a match to see the whatever oh. and that maybe that's what started it and people latched onto that and it's not that he didn't light it but it, but, but that's not the yeah. right grant of the nfpa speaking to the boston sparks association this past november and as reported in the boston globe said it's possible that the act of screwing in the light bulb is what sparked the fire could have. quote the place was full of unlicensed shoddy electrical wiring grant uh -huh. said the substandard electrical wiring was very suspect. Owner Barney Walensky had used unlicensed electrical contractors, cheaped out a lot of the building's development, and bragged he had close ties to City Hall, including hmm. with Mayor Tobin, and that gave him special privileges, he told people. The investigation found that the Coconut Grove hadn't gotten operation licenses for several years. There were no food handlers permits and no liquor licenses. Huh. And while those don't have anything to do with a fire, it kind of shows the attitude towards what the rules are and there had been no building permit for the new broadway lounge and on top of it a lot of the workers including stanley tomaszewski and probably marshall cole too were underage and not legally working there grant said the biggest mystery now 77 years later is why it spread so fast and why it followed the pattern it did and why it released so much toxic gas and he said kind of even if that match did light the palm tree None of the th other things that happened should well, the, have happened. Well, all the doors being locked. Well, yeah, we'll get to that. But okay. e but even that, but the but the biggest mystery is how fast it spread. It went in a, a little more than five minutes, over yeah. 200. It shot more than 200 feet. And that's what Grant said. It should never have spread the way it did. He said it's possible that a flammable refrigerant was involved and the interior finish may have somehow contributed to the blaze well, as well. Well, yeah. 
The loss of life was made worse because, as Grant said, every way in and out of the building had something functionally wrong with it. In the report by the NFPA technical advisor Robert Moulton, shortly after the fire, he stressed that the NFPA building codes, if followed, could have made it less of a tragedy. The codes explicitly prohibited revolving doors in places of assembly. If they were used, swinging doors had to be located nearby, Chereau says. The codes dictated that doors should swing with, rather than against, exit travel. Quote, There is a real danger in attempting to remedy the conditions responsible for the Coconut Grove tragedy by the enactment of more laws, Moulton wrote. And this was shortly after the fire, again. This is too apt to result in satisfying the public demand by passing a law and then leaving the law to gather dust. Yeah, we see that a lot. And one of Stephanie Shrow's points is, well, things were... There were more fire codes changed and stuff after the fire. A lot of these things were already against code that were yes. happening in the club. Yeah, they just weren't being enforced. There were many laws and code changes after the fire, as I said. But as we'll see, Moulton was right. You can have all the laws you want, but someone has to enforce them. The cause of the fire is still listed as unknown. Grant, speaking to the Boston Sparks Association in November, said the biggest issue is not even how it started, which I mentioned, but as I said, the big mystery is why did it spread so rapidly? Why did the fire burn so rapidly, so violently, in such a short amount of time? And I know that's repetitive, but, you know, I want the point that fires start, Yes. But there has to be something that either Well, that sounds, right. from the accounts, it sounds horrible. Like there's balls of fire going everywhere. Yes. The only one ever convicted was owner Barney Walensky, who, remember, was in Mass General recovering from a Thanksgiving heart attack the night of the fire. Coincidentally, many of the victims also ended up there. Walensky was convicted on 19 counts of manslaughter. They, you know, they just picked 19 people. Yes. They were going to try him on 420. And sentenced to 12 to 15 years in prison in 1943. Wow. He huh. served about three and then was pardoned. I've read a couple places that said he was quietly pardoned by Tobin, who was now governor. Interesting. Yeah, you know, Tobin had been the mayor yeah. of his buddy and now was governor. On his release from prison in December 1946, Walensky told reporters he wished he'd died in the fire, too. Yeah. He had cancer, and he died two months later. Yeah. And I that's probably why he was released, but pardoned is a little, you know... Anyway, the governor is able to pardon a bunch of people, like the way that president pardons a turkey, you know. John Collins... <laughs> A Boston firefighter, and who was also in the Navy in Boston at the time of the fire and was one of the people helping people that night, he later became a captain, told Casey Grant that the fire's legacy wore off fast. One day, years later, he was walking by Boston Symphony Hall in uniform on his way back to the fire station, and he saw there was a big show that was going to start that night. He went in, as he sometimes did, more out of curiosity than anything else, and he found there were chairs in the aisles blocking the paths to exits. I wasn't sure what to do, he said. I could have walked out and pretended I'd never seen any of it. He didn't do that, though. He told the management the show couldn't go on until the problem was taken care of. Management was furious, but had no choice, he said. The show was delayed a few minutes as they removed the chairs, and they also had to ask some people to leave. And he said it was a memory of the Coconut Grove and what Frank Linney, the fire inspector, went through that motivated him. He didn't want to be in the position of being the guy who didn't tell the people to fix the thing that was wrong. And that's a good thought. And he'd think people would have learned, right? Flash forward to February 17th, 
2003. 21 people died in a Chicago nightclub, E2, when someone sprayed pepper spray to break up a fight and there was a stampede at the door. Jeff Dadarian, a TV reporter for WPRI-TV in Providence, Rhode Island, thought it would be a great opportunity to do a piece on nightclub safety. And he had just the place. He and his brother Michael owned the Station Nightclub in West Warwick, Rhode Island. In hindsight, it's an indication of his naivety or maybe cluelessness that he thought the station would be a good place to do some B-roll filming for a nightclub safety piece. How ironic. The brothers bought the club in 2000. It was built in 46 as a gin mill, according to the Providence Journal. And it was a big wooden place by 2000. It had like these murals of like rock stars on it. And it, it had one of those plasticky arched mezzanine things along part of the front. Yeah. You know, that are kind of, you know, get stains from the rain on them. By the time the Dadarian brothers bought it in 2000, it had a history of noise problems with neighbors. And shortly after they bought it, they visited Barry Warner, a neighbor who'd complained frequently to the previous owners, according to a 2015 story in Thought Catalog by Denise No. And as an aside, I followed this very closely when it happened in the aftermath. I read the Boston Globe every day, and I'm fascinated by stuff like this. And I remember reading about a lot of this stuff that was in the Thought Catalog story at the time. But in the early 2000s, a lot of stuff still wasn't going online. So this article compiled a lot of it. But some of the stuff has also been reported other places. In any case, the Dedarian brothers assured Warner, the complaining noise neighbor, that they'd try to take care of the noise issue. Warner, who worked for a company called American Foam, suggested they use polyurethane foam for sound insulation. They seemed to think it was a great idea, and they ordered polyurethane foam from American Foam, and they installed blocks of it over the walls and ceiling, mostly around the stage area of the station. I'm not sure where else in the club. Early in 2001, Jeff Dedarian did a news story for his TV station about the fire hazard posed by foam mattresses, Mm. saying that polyurethane foam is called solid gasoline by the experts. He apparently, though, didn't connect the dots to what was on the walls of his own club. Mm-hmm. Neither did Fire Marshal Dennis LaRoque, who inspected the club on November 20th, 2002. He found nine relatively minor code violations, but, to quote the Providence Journal, fails to cite the establishment for the illegal and highly flammable polyurethane foam wow. that has been glued to the nightclub's walls as soundproofing. And again, it was illegal to use that stuff. I don't know if the Dedarians, I can't remember now because there were a lot of stories about that. I don't know if they knew if they checked and knew it or if they just thought this would be a good thing and didn't check but in any case it, there's no uh, word that Barry Warner tried to sell it to the previous owner the previous owner said what are you fucking kidding me that stuff is deadly but in any case the fire inspector didn't note it uh, LaRoque returned on December 2nd for a follow-up inspection and found the nine violations had been corrected and to quote the projo but again fails to note the foam and the foam was in it was visible yes it was eye. glued to the walls okay. it, it was right there it was okay. this eggshell yeah. stuff and on the inspection form he signs off all okay in 2003 it became law in Rhode Island to require sprinklers in places that could be occupied by more than 300 people but the station was built before the law so it was grandfathered mm, i don't like that whole grandfathering idea yeah. well the you safety safety you can't cre- i know but you can't 
create a law that's retroactive. We can talk about that with Matt. Okay. Later reports were that a sprinkler system would have cost the brothers about thirty nine grand, but they didn't install one. And by the way, even if you're grandfathered, that doesn't mean you can't run a sprinkler system. I'm not defending them by any means. Jeff Dadarian obviously didn't think his club was a safety hazard because on February 20th, 2003, three days after that stampede in Chicago that killed mm-hmm. 21 people, Brian Butler from WPRI showed up at the station to film some footage for Dadarian's club safety story. The station was packed that night to see the metal band Great White, though it was more of an iteration with only two of the original members. Rolling Stone has a big, long article about that if you're interested. Earlier that day... February 20th, 2003, interviewed about the E2 stampede in Chicago that killed 21 people. State Fire Marshal Irving J. Owens says Rhode Island's fire codes all but eliminate the chance of a catastrophic nightclub fire or stampede deaths in that state. Sure they do. It's very remote. Something like that would happen here, he said. The official capacity of the club was 404 Though, more on that later, that, that was kind of in dispute. It, there were different numbers depending if there were tables being used or not. It may have been less than 404. And in any case, there were at least 462 people in the Ooh. club that night. One of the features of the Great White show was its pyrotechnics. Mm-hmm. And at 11.07 p.m., as Great White came on stage and launched into Desert Moon, tour manager Daniel Biechel, and sorry if I don't pronounce that right, it's B-I-E-C-H-E-L-E. And I'm going to pronounce it Biechel. I can't remember how it was pronounced before, but that's how I'm going to pronounce it. (laughs) The pyros came out of four 15-inch cans called gerbs and were designed to shoot up, spark, like little geyser, and die out. Almost immediately, the soundproofing behind the stage ignited. Oh my god. It's eerie to watch the footage Butler was shooting, with the band playing, everyone dancing in a very, very crowded room, and anybody who's been to a club knows how that is. The pyrotechnics are sparking, and the soundproofing behind the band light up, but no one immediately notices. You're watching this video, and you're kind of seeing it. Yeah, but people there are busy. Right. Then, well, some people thought it was part of the show, and they're like, cool, cool. Then smoke begins to roll down. This is in the video, and you can hear people reacting. The band stops playing, and you can hear lead singer Jack Russell say into the microphone, this can't be good. You don't see it on the video. But Russell squirts his water bottle on the flames in an attempt to put them out. Biachelle's first thought was, I think I'm in trouble. Some people in the audience, as I said, thought it was part of the show and started cheering, but within seconds, the fire had reached the ceiling. God. The acoustic foam had been installed in two layers. And I got this from Wikipedia. There was no attribution, but I know I've read this in other places. I couldn't find any articles that broke it quite down. Not to apologize for using Wikipedia, but this isn't attributed, but... The highly flammable urethane foam was on top of polyethylene foam, which was more difficult to ignite, but burned hotter once ignited uh, by the very ignitable urethane. Geez. Burning polyurethane foam instantly develops a thick smoke that contains carbon monoxide and hydrogen oh, cyanide gas, which I think is what they used in the ovens in um, yeah. Auschwitz, and a few breaths of it can render someone unconscious. As BU Today later wrote about those who didn't get out right away, quote, they succumbed to the combined effects of 1,000-degree heat, falling debris, and carbon monoxide and hydrogen cyanide from a lethal burning sandwich of polyethylene and polyurethane foam. Others suffocated in a pyramid of bodies by the front oh, door. God. Because, yes, just like the Coconut Grove, there just weren't that many ways out. 
The band was quickly able to get outdoor behind the stage, but initially a bouncer or bouncers reportedly kept others from leaving that way, saying this is only for the band. Oh, jeez. I think people had no clue. What was happening. Uh, the still. seriousness. The door also opened in, becoming the same kind of trap that was found at the Coconut Grove. And I think I must have cut and pasted something out in the Coconut Grove story, but several doors that should have been open were bolted shut there was one door that when you opened it there was a brick wall had been bricked uh. up when i quoted grant as saying there's something wrong with every single door were very few ways to get out of that place and people not only piled up at the revolving door they piled up at the other doors because you're trying to get out oh wait this door doesn't open but there's a hundred people behind you jamming into you trying to get out too so anyway back to the station guitarist ty longley from the band went back in for his guitar Mm. And became one of the casualties. Aww. I think he didn't realize how deadly it was in there, obviously. Afterwards, expert says those who didn't get out within 90 seconds of the fire starting didn't get out. Some 100 died and nearly 300 were injured, making it the fourth greatest single building fire in the U.S. Providence Journal had a timeline that tells the sequence of events better than I can, so here's a partial version of it. 38 seconds after the fire started, the nightclub's fire alarm started to sound. At 11.08, the lights went out, and as the Projo reported, quote, an orderly evacuation turns to chaos. Patrons surge toward the exits. West Warwick police officer Mark Knott, radio's headquarters, stampede, he says, apparently. He must have been on duty there that night. Mm. The main exit becomes clogged with a pile of club goers who had tripped in the surge. So people are all running toward yes. the door. Some of them fell, more people fell, and some of the photos from that that I remember vividly are there's the door there are people like horizontal trying yeah. to get out and I remember reading the account one guy said he grabbed somebody's arm to pull him out and the guy's skin oh. just came off because it was burned. By eleven ten, three minutes after the pyrotechnics went off, the club was engulfed. By eleven thirteen, the last person to get out alive ran down the handicapped access ramp in front of the nightclub. Butler of WPRI, and this isn't from the timeline, this is me, filmed much of it, which became key evidence and you can see 13 minutes Ugh. of what he filmed on YouTube. The video quality isn't great, but the sound is what's the most chilling in a lot of ways. The first, through all of it, actually, you can hear people yelling people's names it. and screaming. You can hear people talking, like towards the end, too. He, I think it's him talking to somebody about what's happened. At four minutes and 30 seconds, you can hear um, sirens. Butler was at first named in one of the zillion lawsuits related to the fire because some said he blocked them from getting out because he was filming, but it was later reported and proved that he was able to film because he had the camera on his shoulder, and anyone who knows what TV video looks like, you can tell he's just moving with a camera. It's not this well-filmed thing. It's He wasn't impeding anyone. You can see that on the video. He even went around the building and shown the camera's light in a window asking if anyone was in there. And it's obvious from the video, it's not to exploit the situation, but to help anyone who may be in there get out. And I think that was brought up in the lawsuit. And I know the media comes under a lot of criticism for, like, taking pictures of things and everything. But the fact he kept rolling helped in the end. It helped as evidence. And I think it's essential for records like that to exist. You can describe a situation like that all you want. But I think the full impact of people seeing and hearing it is essential to them taking Even it if seriously. It's difficult. Yeah. Right. I was at work that night in New Hampshire, and around midnight, you know, we had TVs. It was a newspaper. We had TVs up on the wall. I remember the fire being reported on TV, and my colleague, Chris Duffy, who is from Rhode Island, 
and like many from that state, a very passionate Rhode Islander, said, oh my God, Rhode Island is burning. And he was upset. Um, I think I made some joke like, well, that won't take long, haha. But I too didn't realize, you know, the seriousness. The seriousness. And I wonder, um, we'll probably talk about it later, but the gas issue sped up, I'm sure, a lot of the deaths. I mean, like, as far as yeah, people being they able overcome. to get out. It was the same combination of gas used in Auschwitz. Yeah, so, so they yeah. couldn't get out. They yeah. couldn't get out. People were overcome. Were... And then people who were trying, you know, so people were collapsing. People were yeah. overcome. A lot of people died of that. But then the place just burned to the ground. It wasn't like the in the coconut grove where the fire kind of burned through in a flash yeah, fire. Yeah, because it looks like that was a had a lot of brick. This was a right at the at the coconut grove, and I feel like I lost some of it. But they found some people sitting in their seats with no burns on them, dead. Ugh. It took eight minutes for the fire to burn through the building, and this when you watched it burn because uh, it was a big yeah. wooden yeah box um the coconut grove was concrete and brick yeah but i'll let the projo's timeline tell more of the story at 1 a.m on february 21st bshl tells police that he triggered the fireworks by wire from the side of the stage near a dressing room he also tells police that he had received permission to use the fireworks from club owner michael dadarian at 2 a.m the flow of ambulances responding to the site stops replaced by hearses at 2.20 a.m., Jeffrey Dedarian tells the police that shortly after Great White started playing, quote, I turned and saw fire coming from the stage. I then went to the front area and grabbed a fire extinguisher and handed it to someone. I then went to the entrance to help people get out of the building. He also tells the police that Great White did not have permission to use fireworks in the nightclub. At 7 a.m., officials announced that 39 people had died. At 9 a.m., they announced that the death toll has risen to 50. Just before noon, they announce it's 65. At 1.30, they announce it's 75. At 2.30, 85. At 2.50, Rhode Island Governor Don Carcieri announces that the death toll has risen again to 86 people. Late that night, he announces the death toll is at 96 people. Four more will die in the coming months, the last one in May 2004. And by the way, that's the same month the last Coconut Grove victim died in May 1943. There were other related deaths. One woman died six weeks later from an overdose of antidepressants, and it wasn't clear if it was on purpose or an accident. Another woman who was injured in the fire died in a fall down the stairs of her home six months to the day after the fire. On February 22nd, 2003, two days later, the Dedarian brothers held a news conference at the Sheridan Hotel in Warwick. Please know I tried as hard as I could, Jeffrey Dedarian says through tears. But many people didn't make it out, and that is a horror that will haunt my family for the rest of my life. Yeah. February 24th, three days later, Carcieri, the governor, orders an inspection blitz of all 1,712 places of assembly in Rhode Island, such as theaters, restaurants, nightclubs, and churches, in all 39 cities and towns in the state. On February 25th, Fire Marshal LaRoque, the guy who gave him the thumbs-up inspection, tells the state police that he hadn't seen highly flammable polyurethane foam on the nightclub's walls during the November 20th inspection because he had been blinded by anger after finding an illegal inward-swinging door had been reinstalled after he had ordered it removed during an earlier inspection. He was inspection. blinded by anger. Blinded by anger. But I think he had told them to remove the inner swinging door. Uh, they had reinstalled it after he did his post-inspection check. Like, a lot of businesses want an inner swinging door because 
when deliveries are being made, the guy can yeah. kick the door open. It's easier to go in than out. And um, unfortunately, when there's a fire, people pile up against it and they can't get out. Um, on February 26th, a state grand jury begins its investigation. And by the way, on February 27th, President George W. Bush, through the director of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, denies Carcieri's request for a major disaster declaration. Interesting. Mm -hmm. On April 9th, the State Department of Labor and Training orders the Dedarians to pay a $1 million fine for failing to have workers' compensation insurance for their nightclub employees. So a lot of these people who um, were injured in the fire weren't covered with insurance and there was no workers' comp. And um, On April 22nd, lawyer Ronald J. Resmini files the first federal lawsuit stemming from the fire on behalf of two clients who were injured and a third who lost a spouse in the blaze. It was the first suit of dozens and dozens and dozens. And like the Coconut Grove, there was plenty of blame to go around. On July 7th, Governor Carcieri signs into law the Comprehensive Fire Safety Act of 2003, a major rewrite of the state's fire safety code, and it requires sprinklers in every nightclub that serves more than 150 people, grandfathered or not. Yes. July 25th, in response to the station fire, the National Fire Protection Association adopts a strict new national model fire code. Among other provisions, it suggests that states require sprinklers in every nightclub serving more than 50 people. And the codes, by the way, I didn't say this earlier with the Coconut Grove, the National Fire Protection Association can adopt codes, but states themselves set the code. So, like, the codes, like, for revolving doors and stuff at the time of the Coconut Grove weren't necessarily Massachusetts codes, but they were suggested by the NFPA. And then there were guidelines, and then the states have to... And the states have to write make their, their own laws and code. enforce them. Right. Okay, yep. On August 20th, the U.S. Occupational Safety and Health Administration fines the club owners $85,200 and the band $7,000 for workplace safety violations. Mm-hmm. September 21st, the Projo Providence Journal publishes a list of 412 people who were inside the nightclub when the fire began. It is the first public tally of who was there. The capacity of the building, never legally resolved, was either 258 or 404, depending on how the building was being used. And, but there were questions about that, and nobody really knew what the occupancy was. And that list eventually grew to 462. On December 9th, the grand jury returns manslaughter indictments against the Dedarians and Shell. The indictments outrage some fire survivors and families of those who died who believe the fire marshal who declared the club safe should have also faced charges, you know, like the guy in the Coconut Grove. And that Coconut Grove guy is the one who was cited later by the Boston fire captain who stopped the show at Symphony Hall that night because he didn't want his legacy to be the guy who let something go. That's right. So a lesson to all inspectors. On March 3rd, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, a federal agency that investigates building and fire safety issues, unveiled a 550-page draft report about the fire. It recommends tighter fire codes nationwide and says Rhode Island's new requirement for sprinklers and nightclubs that hold more than 150 people may not be strict enough. On September 23rd, faced with hundreds of potential lawsuits stemming from the fire that the Darians file for bankruptcy, protection for themselves and their company, Durko, LLC. <laughs> Durko. On February 7th, 2006, Shell pleaded guilty to 100 counts of involuntary manslaughter oh in a plea God. deal under which he could face up to 10 years in prison. 
which the prosecutor was pushing for the 10 years. At least. The deal, well, this is the deal was against the advice of his lawyers. He wrote individual letters to each victim's family and was the only one charged who seemed truly remorseful. His lawyer, Thomas J. G. Briotti, arguing against the 10-year sentence, noted that Biachel pled guilty despite his lawyer's advice and, quote, he's the only man to say I apologize. Dan Biachel committed a misdemeanor that night without any way of knowing the stage had been set for what Attorney General is calling the perfect storm. Uh I submit that a brutal draconian sentence like 10 years in prison is not warranted by Dan Biachel's conduct. And that's true. It's just like if the Stanley kid had lit the lighter and lit the palm tree, accidentally lit the palm tree on fire, there still needed to be a provision the fire shouldn't have burned like that. Yes. And same with the station, and you'll see... Well, also, what I was going to say is, though, his attorneys were saying, you know, advised him against it, but... His attorneys thought they could win had, the case. They thought they could, but it depends. If well, it was in front of a jury, he probably well, would have gotten more. So but wait, ahead. there's more. But wait. Bisha was sentenced by Judge Francis J. Derrigan Jr. to serve four years in prison. Asked if he wanted to say anything, Biachel said... Quote, since the fire, I wanted to tell the victims and their families how truly sorry I am for what happened that night and the part that I had in it. I never wanted anyone to be hurt in any way. I never imagined that anyone ever would be. I know how this tragedy has devastated me, but I can only begin to understand what the people who lost loved ones have endured. I don't know that I'll ever forgive myself for what happened that night, so I can't expect anyone else to. I can only pray that they understand that I would do anything to undo what happened that night and give them back their loved ones. I'm so sorry for what I've done, and I don't want to cause anyone any more pain. I will never forget that night, and I will never forget the people who are hurt by it. I'm so sorry. He was paroled after two years to the anger of some survivors and victim families, but others said they don't blame him for the fire. The question of whether he'd had permission to set off the pyros was never fully resolved. Mm. The Dedarians had released a statement after the fire saying at no time did either owner have prior knowledge that pyrotechnics were going to be used by the band Great White. And after the fire, it was reported that Dominic Santana, owner of the New Jersey nightclub, the Stone Pony Mm. in Asbury Mm -hmm. Park, said Great White had used pyrotechnics there without permission. He said, we do not allow pyrotechnics and it got us by surprise. Both Great White lead singer Jack Russell and Biachelle said, though, that they had permission, and lawyer John Berylick, in his book Killer Show, said the fact that the Darians had a history of pyros at the club made that believable. Right after they bought it, in fact, Thought Journal writes, heavy metal band Wasp, which was managed by Biachelle, used pyrotechnics. Biachelle flipped a switch that caused lead singer, <laughs> I should have left, Blackie Lawless's crotch to erupt in... <laughs> And showering sparks. <laughs> oh, dear. Berylick, um, who was one of the lawyers um, involved in a lot of the lawsuits, also said there were several times shortly before the fire in which clubs wouldn't allow the pyrotechnics and Great White didn't use them. Hmm. Interesting. Owens, the fire marshal, you remember, he's the guy who said this couldn't ever happen in Rhode Island the same Poor day guy. it ended up happening said that a licensed pyrotechnician in Rhode Island must apply for the permit. Biachelle wasn't licensed, and neither he nor the Dedarians applied for a permit. In fact, Berylick wrote that Biachelle never got a required pyrotechnics permit at any of the pyro shows he did. Hmm. But again, I'm not saying he's, like, totally innocent, but if it were my club, 
I'd be making sure I, if there I, were pyros. Well, see, I would say that I don't think pyrotechnics should ever be used indoors at all. Yeah, they don't make me comfortable. I, I think that yeah, that sounds like a very a recipe bad for idea. Jeff and Michael Dadarian had originally pled not guilty, but in September 2006 changed their pleas to no contest. Michael Dadarian got the same sentence Biachelle did, four years imprisonment and three years probation. He ended up serving more time than Biachelle, though, according to news accounts, because he wasn't a model prisoner, including mm-hmm. breaking rules at work release that got him transferred from minimum security to idiot. medium security, and he lost his work release. Jeff, who hadn't been as involved as Michael in buying and installing the foam, was sentenced to three years probation and 500 hours of community service. Some of the major lawsuits were against American Foam Corporation and Hauser Bush, which advertised the concert as well as supplied the beer, the town of West Warwick, Great White, and TV station WPRI, and there were many more to mm. list. Those were the major ones. All the defendants settled, and the total of all settlements was slightly over $176 million. Jeez. There are many aspects to both of these fires, and there was just too much to go into the, a lot of the details. And for instance, the Coconut Grove, the huge changes in burn treatment pioneered by Mass General when they were dealing with the victims. I remember reading in that book that people thought um, burn deaths were caused directly by the burns, when it turns out shock and infection are the biggest Ugh, causes yeah. of burn deaths. And other things, in fact, that's the place now, Mass General is now the place to go if you have burn injuries. And also how the hospitals operated. 300 injured people went to Boston City Hospital because it was nearby. And Boston has a zillion hospitals, and some of them didn't get anyone. So they you did more of a plan about that. They were already doing disaster planning in Boston because of the war, and this helped with that. So there's a lot of angles to that. Research regarding the psychological impact of things like that on responders and people involved after both fires was done. And, of course, the tweaks and changes to fire codes after both fires. But as Robert Moulton said shortly after Coconut Grove, there's a bigger issue. Laws don't work if they're not enforced. And as long Mm -hmm. as there are humans, there will be greed and lack of insight, to put it nicely, as well as corruption, which I believe had a lot to do with Coconut Grove's issues, that allows tragedies like this to continue. There was a long, involved process for a movement to make the station site a memorial, and that could be a story in itself. Any of you from Rhode Island who are listening... Don't knock me for not going into that. Um, there is a memorial there now. In Boston, the Coconut Grove site was a parking lot for a long time, and then the streets were changed as urban renewal took hold. A small bronze plaque was placed on Piedmont Street near the site of the revolving door in the 90s, but it's been moved several times as development of the neighborhood takes hold. And I don't know where it is right now, but I remember reading the story in 2012 that it was difficult to find. Um, Led by the NFPA, a movement began in 2012 to gather interviews, memorabilia, and more from the Coconut Grove fire in an effort to keep the conversation going. Like so many other things we talk about, the only way to keep them from happening again is for people to understand how they happened in the first place. And so that's that could have lasted all night. Well, Well, a lot of it, a lot of these fires. Usually it's a fire that kills a lot of people like this. Like there was that nightclub. There there was a documentary about the one, the upstairs lounge. Is that mm-hmm. what it's called? It was a gay bar in New, I yes. think it was New Orleans. Yeah. Same thing. A lot of and it is the fact that there aren't ways to get out. 
people don't want to think that this might happen, so they don't really plan for it to happen. Right. They can kind of give lip service to it, but then never right. not actually and do what they're supposed to do. And also, psychologically, I remember reading this somewhere, that in in times of, like, crisis or panic, people tend to, like, go out the way they came in, mm-hmm. even if it's not the most logical place to go. You know, because it's, it's just your right. It's your, your, instinct your instinct to do it. And also, speaking of all the other ones, like the shirtwaist fire, I know that there have been many, many, many deadly fires and yes. stampedes. Yes, in the world, in the U.S. In fact, it's a little ridiculous for that guy to have said a stampede deaths can't happen here because they can happen anywhere. Yes. Look at the Who concert. Yes, I was just. In fact, about that. in 1979, when I was a freshman in college, the Pope was in Boston. And my roommate and I and a bunch of people took a bus to go to this big mass they were having on Boston Common. So here you are in the total open. And we and they had the Pope and a bunch of bishops giving communion. Now there's, I can't remember how many people were there, but it was tens and tens of thousands no, of people. Sure. But my roommate, Colleen, and I decided we were going to go get communion. And at the time, um, she's no bigger than I am. We were both like 5'3 and probably 120 pounds or whatever. And the crowd surged towards the front, and we were, like, grabbing onto each other. But my feet were literally off yeah. the ground. We had no control over where we were going. And that's a scary feeling. And it's a scary feeling, and that was before the Who concert. But yes. then later, there, there was the Who concert where I think like 11 people died. No, that was, I think it was 79. It Maybe. was winter of 79, yeah, like December of 79. But in any case, I don't want people, well, you can criticize us for whatever you want, but... I, I was looking at two nightclub fires and yes. things that were kind of unique to those in similarities between the yes. two. And I and there know are that there lot. are other many, many fires They're that 60 deserve 60 years apart, but... Yeah. But it's funny how so little many, things change. Right. So many of the same things, including well, toxic gases, materials, materials yeah. that shouldn't have been used and were used that were not noticed or ignored by inspectors that the owners either didn't care or never bothered to find out if it was okay. And I can remember reading stories about the Dedarians, how the noise that really went into the noise issues, and how basically the club was going to be, now I can't remember all the details, but they just struggled and struggled and struggled to find ways, because it's this old wooden building, and they have friggin' metal bands playing in there. You know, maybe the solution is that's not the place for you to that's try to right. make a living. But I I hear constantly... People um, in the line of work I'm in complain about codes and how onerous they are and how hard it is to make money when you have to adhere to codes. A lot of people, the majority of people think they're important and I don't want to sound like I'm, not to sound like like Mike Brady or something, but there's a reason these codes exist. And I think if nothing makes that more clear, it's these two fires. And I've found that um, usually, I mean, this this also sounds like a stupid aphorism or something, but... If there's a rule or something, there's a something that's behind it. Right. Like at work, I work at a big box, and they're always safety, safety, safety because they get can get sued very easily. But anytime a new new safety rule pops up, it's because someone did something right. that made somebody realize, oh, you know, that we better have a rule about that because it's unsafe. Right. So there's usually something behind it, right. the regulation. And I know people are like, well, that's never going to happen. Right. Well, you don't know that. Right. And also, if you own a business, if you can't afford to make that business safe for human beings to be in, then you can't afford to yeah. have the business. And 
you know, look at the look at the alternative. Yeah, a hundred people died. Many were disfigured or oh. and ruined just think for of life. The PTSD of everybody that yeah. was there. Yeah, I'm not gonna say you want to watch that video, but anyone oh, who thinks I've I'm seen... overreacting and you don't even see anything. I know, but I've, I but just, just but it. listening to the people screaming and calling people's names and to realize that. Uh, one quarter of the people in there didn't get out. And to see, like, the photos, too, of the people piled, like, mm. friggin' logs in the door, reaching, trying to get out. It's just horrible. It's, yeah. And the, I think there are people who don't care. It, uh, Barney Waleski flaunted the fact that he didn't have to do the stuff he was told to do because he was buddies with yeah. Morris Tobin. And, um, A lot of people brag about... Um, about the corners they cut and flouting rules and you know what are the stakes i guess it depends i mean if but when it's human lives at stake and there's nothing nothing to brag about right and you there's nothing to fault any victims about they went to a place that they assumed was a safe and place to someone, go. Uh, even if someone was drunk, that has nothing yeah, to do with it. Right, <laughs> right, mean, right. You know, you know, and there's, and I know, in like, a bar. like, Great White was sued. I agree with you. I don't think pyrotechnics could be used, should be used indoors. But they had used them. And if there hadn't been the illegal foam on the walls, yes. there wouldn't have been a fire. That's so, true. I feel bad, and I remember feeling very bad for Dan Bichel, and I'm not saying he's blameless, and I don't know who had permission and who didn't, and blah, blah, blah. But first of all, Jeff Dadarian was there. He was there. He must have seen them setting up. I know. The pyrotechnics weren't hidden. So, it, and, and I'm going to have to read that book, Killer Show. But as I said a few times, just like the Coconut Grove, even if that poor kid did light the match, fires are going to start. Things are going to happen. It's what happens after the fire starts yeah. that's the key to how well your safety measures. Yeah, if you have sprinklers. Can you imagine being like in this place with deadly smoke and flame and go and seeing a door and saying, oh my God, I can get out that door and then going and opening it and it's blocked up with bricks. I know. Or it's bolted shut and you can't get it open. And then all of a sudden there's so many people piling up behind you that you can't no. move and get away from it. thought makes me want to... I lost a part because there was a part in the Melody Lounge, there was a cashier who later became a psychiatrist, but he was a 21-year-old cashier who, first of all, he laid down behind the bar with a wet towel over his face because he couldn't get out. He tried to get out and the gate wouldn't open behind the bar or whatever. But then it got quiet and he realized the Melody Lounge was no longer burning, although it was still filling with smoke. And the people who were there were either groaning or dead. So he went through the kitchen and he found these people in the kitchen. And he knew that you could go through the boiler room and get out onto Shamit Street. And he opened the door to the boiler room and there was no fire in there. But it, it was warm because the boiler was in there and the people wouldn't follow him. Oh, so he went out know. and he said, okay, I'll try to get you help. And they all were overcome with smoke and died. But by the time he could get firemen to go back and, and find him. And another psychiatrist, whose names I don't have, and I feel bad, I think I lost a whole page of my thing, said it, the Coconut Grove was a perfect example of panic response. And they they used it actually for research on that, that how people, some people like Saul Davis, the 21-year-old doctor, and, the, and this guy, the 21-year-old cashier and stuff, managed to put 
the emotions aside and mm-hmm. say, I am going to get out of this place. Yeah. And then other people panicking. The problem is when the people who are panicking keep the people who yeah, they are... Freeze. Well, it's funny because we have to take the um, uh, active shooter uh, training at work. And one of the things it tells you, which we kind of laugh at because of the because of the way it's depicted in the, they have little slides and stuff. Yeah. But it says some people are going to not want to go with you and you have to just leave them and yeah, go. That's true. They said there are going to be people that will, you cannot get to move because yeah. they're just going to be Just like in the Poseidon in panic. Adventure. Yes. But you just, have to, <laughs> you just have to go. do it. You can't yeah. try to help people if they're not going to, you right. know, and that's the thing. They're just the way some people react. Yes. And I'd like to hope that I'm not going to be one of those people that But freezes. you don't know, as we learned on I'll Hidden probably Brain. Be, if there's an active shooter, I'll probably get shot. Is, so, is that Hidden Brain, you have to listen to the Hidden Brain episode because he talks about, I don't think he talks about active shooter, but people think they're going to react a certain way in yeah. a situation, then it happens and they just don't. But I think that's that's why when you're in the army or when you're in some kind of a of a training for something, that's why there's repetition and they he make talks you about that. and they, they make you, you go through it. All right, the they time. put you in these extreme situations and and, and so condition you condition to, you to react, react. Yes. rationally instead of panic. That was very interesting, and I didn't know what you were going to yeah, do. Yeah, you didn't, and I got very excited and then kind of overwhelmed because particularly at Coconut Grove, there's the amount tons of, of stuff. Shit. I was just googling and, it to um, see pictures while the you link were talking. I'll put the link I'll put on our website and the NFPA's. Um, they have a page that has links to all sorts of things like the Boston Fire Walking Tour. Yes, and the and video. there's a fire museum. Yes, in which we should go to some time yeah i guess that's it okay and we'll have our recommendations yes well we're doing some recommendations okay now it's time for our recommendations and since i've been talking for a long time you you get to go first all right so sorry negative nelly's yes watching. negative nelly's for watching. those of you who i gotta put up a page on the website yes with our that explains with, it. it explains it but basically we start with a 10 Right. And then we remove points. Yes. Because we're negative. And yes, and there are peeves, are peeves about things. Yes. If you have never heard it before, you can listen to our other shows. I don't really remember yeah. what show we explained it in. What, probably like the 45 first time. Or something. But it was a couple of years ago. Yeah, it was. Anyways, I watched a show called Murder in the Heartland, which is ID show, but it's on Hulu. I don't have I, ID, yeah. so I yeah. get Hulu. And I watched the first season. I think it's just, there were only six episodes. And when I looked on IMDb, it looked like that was all there was in the first season. A lot of those ID shows are really cheesy. Mm, yeah. And I thought this one would be similar, but it actually has some good things about it it has no narrator which is always always it seems to cut back a lot on our negative points because there's less of a chance of some of our things that we that bug us so i will go through it and then i'll talk some more about it the first one bad reenactments i'm going to take off half a point okay it did have reenactments but they were the kind that aren't too specific. So you kind of saw impressions of things happening, like if someone was getting attacked or something. Right. But you didn't see, like, people acting it out and stuff. So right. I'll get take off half because I really, in general, do not like reenactments and don't think they're necessary. I think there was other ways to show things, computer graphics, if you need to show how something happened. Right. Reenactments I just feel me. like when they have reenactments, it's because they don't have enough of the other stuff yeah. and they feel people need yes. the people's attention needs to be kept or yes. something narrative cliches i didn't see too many and i think like i said a lot of it is probably because there was no narrator yes they basically talked to people involved in the case 
and the style of filmmaking was kind of kind of similar to a lot of the ones we've seen lately where they have um, interviews with people without narration. They will show photographs and film clips and stuff like that. And they do have, you know, words on the screen, but there isn't a lot of someone telling us what we're seeing, which I prefer. I don't need you to tell me what someone just said. I can hear it for myself. So I didn't take anything off for that. Racial and gender stereotypes. Everybody... From what I can remember of the six episodes, there was one episode that had Native American community and the victim was Native American. The uh, rest of them were white. So I would say race your gender stereotypes, no. I mean, they were basically telling the story of what was there. For lack of good visuals, no, they actually, the way it was filmed was, I liked it. It wasn't cheesy like a lot of the ones you see. They had a lot of good images, overhead images of the community or the area of the country that gave you a good idea of the setting. So I would say it was pretty good in that way. Missing pieces, not really... They covered, you know, one case a show, and the show was about an hour. I didn't really have a lot of questions about things. I would say they're fine with that. Inaccuracy and anachronisms, not that I know of, where they don't have reenactments that that helps with that. Storytelling, I thought the storytelling was was better than I expected. Maybe I had a set a low bar when I started Hmm. watching it, but I like, like I've said, no narrator, and that is what I really prefer. I feel like you can tell a story just as well with the people you're interviewing without somebody over voicing over a bunch of stuff. I mean, I guess sometimes it depends. It doesn't always bother me, but a lot of times it just seems, it seems unnecessary. Freshness. I don't believe I had heard of any of the crimes that they covered before. Um, The way they covered them was different. I think one of the things I like about, and I'll go with this with storytelling and freshness, is that without a narrator, you don't have that hyperbole or like, oh, what they found, turn the case, you know, on its head or stuff like that. Or they couldn't believe, you know, the twist or whatever. You know, you don't have any of that, which is refreshing. A repetition. I'm taking off half a point. They would show the same pictures over and over and over again, which Mm -hmm. I know they can't help in some ways, but still, I'm taking it off. Beating a drum, no. None of them really didn't seem to be trying to beat the drum about anything. A lot of this, I I could take points off if I was going to blame the people they were interviewing, like for cliches and stuff. Like the first one, there were a lot of cliches of the people they were interviewing. The second one, we have a thing about some of the way that some people talk law enforcement Mm -hmm. they can't say they can't speak like a normal person they can't say this guy came in and shot somebody they have to say this male individual or gentleman proceeded to shoot so and there was a guy and you know it's worse when people write like that (sighs) who aren't cops (laughs) but so i didn't take anything off for that so the overall score i'm giving this is a nine Mm. i know our scores are confusing because i've given lower scores for something i enjoyed more right but we do have certain criteria right and uh, i'll say a nine and maybe we should ask an 11th 
we should add an eleventh category for yes no. likability or well, yeah, I not guess. yes or no, but but I liked yeah, it. I yeah. mean, it wasn't like oh my god, you have to watch this. Right. Like some things are, but I gave it a nine. Yeah, and I think I, I, I watched a couple it. and I like them. And what did you? Pat? Well, yes. I'm gonna do the the preppy murder documentary, and I got the Sundance app just so I could watch it. And first of all, do they have a pre? Yes, they do have a free app. I give that a zero, and I'm going to get rid of it because I have Chromecast, and supposedly you can Chromecast, but it just kept trying to load, load, load to my TV and wouldn't, so I had to watch it on the iPad, and... With the Chromecast, I want to watch on my big TV. I'm not a fan of the Sundance app. You know, Netflix app works beautifully. I don't know why Oxygen and NBC, I've been getting this pop-up every 30 seconds for the past two months about my volume or something, and it's very annoying. I can't get rid of it, and I was told to, you know, delete my cash and all this. I don't, it doesn't matter what I do, Fuck I can't them. get it. it shouldn't work if you're paying yeah, for well, it. Yeah, well, I feel like if, if other places can do an app that works, why can't other places? But I digress. Yes, you are digressing. So this is about the murder of Jennifer Levin by Robert Chambers in New York in 1986. I'm pretty familiar with it. I followed it at the time. Yes, I remember. I'd like wow. to say, before I get into it, a little something about the narrative surrounding the documentary. I keep hearing a lot of sweeping generalizations Everybody thought he was this good-looking prep. No. no, I thought he was creepy the first time I saw a photo Me of him. Too. And most of the, I was 25 at the time. Most of the young women I knew at the time thought the same thing. Yeah, me as well. Everybody blamed Except her for being 21. a slut. Maybe the tabloid journalism did, but I think most of us didn't buy the narrative from the get-go and knew what it was. So I know it's easy to look back 30-plus years yeah, especially people who don't remember much about the thing when it happened. But being a 25-year-old woman, I followed it closely. And a lot of the narrative surrounding the documentary, you know, it's like people are walking on the moon for the first time or something. And it's just not what was going on back then. Bad reenactments, I'm taking away a point. Ooh. Because there aren't a lot of reenactments, but one of the big issues I have is that, like at the beginning, when her body is found in Central Park... They have reenactments that kind of blend into what's going on, and you can't delineate between what the crime scene photos are and what the reenactment is. And there are things that are obviously reenactments, certain close-ups and things. And I want to know what the real thing is. Yes, they could have a little thing that says reenactment in the corner. Right, and and those reenactments aren't necessary. They had so many crime scene photos don't show. Like, when he talks about sitting on the fence watching them people come Robert Chambers that morning, you know, it shows the guy sitting on the fence as the police are coming. Just show crime scene photos. Mm-hmm. I don't need to see a reenactment of him sitting on the I fence know. because know. he we said he was. I just feel like the amount of real video and photos that were available, there's no reason to have reenactments. It doesn't enhance the story. Narrative cliches, there is no narration that I can remember. And I meant to go back and review this, but I ended up not having time. I do feel I'm going to take away um, half a point because I know we always say the what people are saying, even if what they're saying are cliches, you can't. But I, I feel the way, especially over the course of a miniseries, the way quotes are used and the way people are used that I felt like it skewed towards certain things. not Nothing, like, major towards certain cliches, like that there were these rich, fun kids 
Robert Chambers pretended to be a rich kid but wasn't. And I kept thinking, well, so if he really was a rich kid, does that mean really rich kids don't do this kind of thing? Yeah, I know. Kind yeah. of thing. And and I actually have friends from college, like one good friend who grew, who grew up fairly well-to-do in Manhattan. And they were going to clubs at a young age and all the things these kids were doing. But there was a lot of this, everybody was doing this one mm-hmm. thing. And there was no other voice saying, well, not everybody was doing this one yeah. thing. And so I feel like cliches are reinforced by that. Okay. So I'm taking away half a point. Racial gender stereotypes. A lot of the documentary is about gender. And some of it tries to bust stereotypes. And so there's not a lot about race because everybody's white. And so I'm not going to take anything away from there. Lack of good visuals. They had lots of good photos and lots of good video. Missing pieces, yes. I'm taking away a point. While they do a good job of telling the story in a lot of ways with a lot of information, I get hung up on questions about things. And part of this is the storytelling and the other half of this point is going to go to take away from storytelling. Things about the timeline were unclear when they have people talking like about the crime scene that morning and what happened when are unclear. I got really unclear the first couple days of the crime, what was happening when his interrogation with police. There was just a lot of timeline issues for me. Also just unclear about certain things happening. One big question I had was his Robert Chambers allegation or allegation or whatever the word is that she was on top of him and he kind of put his arm around her neck and flipped her over and then he looked and she was dead well she was strangled and the evidence showed she was strangled if he had done that and immediately killed her i would think her neck would be broken linda fairstein was the prosecutor and they had like a chokehold up expert and stuff but I never saw any evidence that anyone did the old classic things. Here's how long it takes to strangle yes. somebody. Here's the expert who says how long it takes to strangle somebody. If somebody had done what he said he did, the injury to her neck would have been different. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't have killed her unless it broke yes. her neck. And her neck wasn't broken, blah, blah, blah. To me, that's a big missing piece. Yes. The whole case hinged on that. And if Linda Fairstein dropped the ball, and this was her first homicide prosecution, and didn't go after that... I want to know about yes. it. I thought the the documentary was very flattering to her. Mm-hmm. And I think we all know from the Central Park Five yeah. thing that she does have her failings. And to me, that was a big missing piece. There were smaller missing pieces. Inaccuracy, anachronisms, not really. I felt there were some assumptions made in 2018 or so that you can't make about 1986. But... Not enough to take away half a point. Okay. Storytelling, I'm taking away a point. Well, make it half a point. Make it half a point. Because they did do a good job, as everybody's, you know, all excited about, of telling Jennifer Levin's story and showing who she was as a person and blah, blah, blah. And as we know, there was a lot of victim shaming around this. Yes, there was at the time. But I feel that they miss a lot of the, like... Robert Chambers' interview with police, it would have been great to have more analysis of his behavior. He was obviously a psychopath. I had questions, and it's kind of missing pieces too, but I had questions about some of the things he said and whether they were followed up on. I felt like it skipped around. I mean, it was a fairly linear story, but skipped around in ways enough and got so caught up in her friends talking about her and stuff that I felt there were key things about what happened in the timeline 
that were missed. Mm-hmm. Half point. Freshness, it was fresh. It told a story that many of us are familiar with, but there hasn't been a lot done on. I think I've seen a couple things on like true crime shows about it. But those basically just retell the thing. So I thought that was fine. Repetition, I do feel that some of the the things that weren't essential to what happened with the case were gone on about a lot. Um, so I'm taking away half a point. I would have liked some new information where kind of old information was repeated. I'm beating the drum, I'm taking away half a point. Ooh. Because... The whole thing about him and not being a rich preppy, but being this, you know, more middle class kid whose mother was made, blah, blah, blah. Yes, I think that's significant, but it was gone on quite a bit. Like some, almost where you're feeling that if he had been rich, he wouldn't have done this yes. kind of thing. And it really, it's a lot more complicated yes, than that. Yes, So how, what does that... Six. Wow, that's a low score. I did enjoy watching it. So it's like what you were saying earlier. But I did feel, I feel like there's this whole, at least from the podcast and stuff I listen to, that this is getting elevated because it tells the victim's stories and stuff. And also I hear a lot of crap uh, about the defense attorney, Jack Littman, who did victim shame Jennifer Levin. But defense attorneys do what they do, and he was good at what he did. And I feel like it's the role of the prosecution to counter that. And one of the issues is I didn't see that countered. And also it was kind of funny on real crime profile, like Jim Clemente was crapping. He doesn't like defense attorneys anyway, but also crapping on the media. And when you talk about the media in that case, you're talking about a certain part of the tabloid media. Yes. And he, it's funny because this is 1986. So he's saying, so next time something, we have to stop reading the newspapers and show them and we have to get on social media and blah, blah, blah. Well, I've got news for you. Social media now plays the role that those tabloid newspapers were playing in 1986. And social media is where people get crapped on and shamed yeah. and bullied and the bad narrative gets taken. And if you read about any big thing going on in the Los Angeles Times or Boston Globe or even your local newspaper, if you ever pick it up, you're going to read a much more neutral yeah. and well-researched and written story than you are by going on Twitter and hearing what all the people who yeah. either believe what you do or don't so the media's an easy target. These documentaries about things that take place in New York City tend to focus on the New York tabloids and show the same headlines over and over and over again. And I'm not saying the media didn't play a big part in advancing the narrative, but it was also up to those involved in the case to advance the narrative. And if you're going to paint the media as a certain way, show what all the media was doing. What was the New York Times writing about yeah. it? You know, what was... The you know the the what were the newspapers on the suburbs writing about? And that's it? the thing too. Back in 1986, as you know better than me, there were a hell of a lot more newspapers than there than there are now. Yes, there I don't think people understand what a role that newspapers and TV news and magazines like Time Magazine and Newsweek played in people's lives that they do not now. I mean, the, the internet right. Changed but part everything. of the thing with this is how the media that media advanced yes, the narrative about that, her but but it's like funny saying, there's there were there were more it was a more varied thing than just what the new york yes. post was throwing on the front page and i don't think and this isn't necessarily about the documentary but more about the reaction to the documentary i don't think boycotting newspapers when they're covering a big 
Ooh, it was sexual murder is the and getting on social media instead is the best way to yeah. be informed. No, I don't so know. I do recommend it. I just feel like there's a lot of things, and I also I don't I don't want to get into it because this isn't about watching the documentary. But I heard the um, documentarian interviewed. Uh, I think it was on Real Crime Profile a couple weeks ago. I can't remember which podcast, but I think that's what it was. And I had issues with a lot of his assumptions and generalizations about things. And I listened to it after I watched the documentary. And I'm glad I didn't listen to it before I did because it would have, I would have watched it through that prism of what his generalizations. How old is he? That's what I, I don't know. Bob Freeman, I think he's probably our age. I just feel like a lot of times when I'm, when I'm listening to somebody or watching something that I remember like this, because mm-hmm. I was 21. And I'm, I guess everybody feels this way the older you get. People talk about, like, the 1980s, like it was the dark ages. Yeah. And yes, it was different than now, but it's not, I don't know. I know. It's, it's not like it was, we were all Neanderthals or cavemen, or that was the decade I was in my 20s, because yeah. I was born in 1961. So every decade is a different decade, you know, mm-hmm. eight age for me i remember very clearly what i thought about this from the yes, beginning that the whole rough sex thing and, and it's friends, funny I my friends hearing, felt the same way and we were all her, right about and same i kept hearing her. this yeah. rough sex thing and my view of it for a long time because they didn't specify necessarily in, until the trial was that it was choking and yes. he choked her and then i remember when i finally heard what hit he said that she was sexually attacking him mm. and he threw her off. You know, the whole thing was like, it, what Jim Clemente did make one good point. He had his, said he had his hands, and this is also something they didn't, I don't remember them addressing in the documentary. He said he had his hands tied behind his back and he managed to get one free and throw her off. Jim Clemente goes, well, if he had one hand free, his other hand was free. So why is he taking her with one arm and, you know, so it was all bullshit. bullshit. But I remember at the time thinking it was bullshit. Yes. And most of the women I knew thought it was bullshit. Although I do remember getting into arguments with some of the guys I knew. Same. Everybody wasn't thinking, oh, here's a handsome preppy and this slutty girl attacked him. No. Uh, People, young women who who had experienced unwanted male attention and other things and misogyny throughout their lives and in their workplace fully understood what had happened from the get-go but is always our opinions aren't the ones that people are listening to so anyway well thank you good so anyway and that's today's (laughs) that's today's (laughs) no i'm watching the i know it's a so you can find us on facebook at crime and stuff on twitter at crime and stuff our website (laughs) crimeandstuffonline.com. See ya. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.